This episode is brought to you by our Patreon supporters. Become a patron today at patreon.com forward slash into the portal. The Great Flood is an epic that first originated in far more ancient times than the book of Genesis. The waters that swallowed the world at the hand of vengeful deities has been referenced as far back as ancient Sumeria. But the figures involved, Gilgamesh, Noah, and of course the construction of a massive ark, are aspects and characters of legend that appear across other ancient stories as well, leaving us to wonder if indeed there was a real hero figure who constructed a vessel that saved mankind. There are those who are so certain in the existence of the Ark and of its location that they have traversed the dangerous slopes of Mount Ararat, the Genesis version final resting place of the legendary Ark. Join us this week on Into the Portal as we discuss the ancient legends leading to the story of Noah and the deluge that wiped out mankind and the subsequent search for the very real Ark left resting in the mountains. Hello, and welcome back into the portal. I'm Amber Ray. And I'm Andrew McKay. And we're back with the great wave of the flood, part two. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Actually, I don't even know. It's a coming, it's a coming. <laughs> well, Amber's been throwing out all these, like, puns and, like, hilarious, uh, <laughs> yeah, all these right. hilarious gifts and stuff. I've been trying to find, like, a bunch of, like, uh, oh my gosh, like, far side style comics about, like, tsunamis and biblical floods. And oh, everything. man, there's, there's some... There's good ones. <laughs> totally. There's some classic far side flood mm. stuff. Matt Drew threw out one, too, that was pretty funny. Oh, my gosh, what was it? Was it on unicorns? I think it was about unicorns, but hilarious. They right. got skipped. They got skipped. <laughs> so, yeah, we're getting into the Great Flood Part 2 today. Um, some more mythology for you guys that's really, really cool. And then some exploration stuff that's, like really fascinating yeah but before we jump into all of that just a tiny bit of housekeeping and we do have some new reviews which is sweet um one of them's from the uk and we can't remember because amber and i have terrible memories uh if uh, we already (laughs) shouted you out but you're getting a double shout out if you uh if you had one already so troy stevens 1982 thank you so much for that five star review over in the uk Mm -hmm. and uh we actually have a lot of listeners in the uk which is really cool we have more listeners in the uk than we do in canada they're on they're on par and Mm -hmm. then australia is right there in uh, up there as well and, true uh, actually yeah, yeah. anyway yeah. it's pretty cool so thank you for that <laughs> and then we also had a uh, <laughs> this one was kind of funny and we'll still we'll still shout it out a, a little uh, yeah. it was a three-star review um in our canadian itunes and uh it was kind of funny it was <laughs> um, someone who uh, wasn't too happy that we'd uh, veered away from cryptozoology but we just covered mckelly and bembe in december yeah. so it hasn't been that long but mm-hmm. anyway um not as keen on the mythology so they said they had to move along we're sorry to see you go, but you know what? Yeah. We are definitely going to be covering a heck of a lot more cryptozoology. Know, right? We'll <laughs> so, be back. So anyway, maybe they'll um, come back. That's kind of funny. Yeah. And then a couple new newbies in uh, the American iTunes, which is always awesome because most of our listeners are down there in the U.S. So what's up, everybody? What, what? So we had a five star, um, and its title says "Knowledgeable and Fun," and this is from TT Book Two. 
And it came in on February 25th and they said, this is one of my new favorite podcasts. The topics are fun and fascinating and the hosts have a great chemistry and are super knowledgeable about their subjects and they love it. So that's awesome. Thank you so much. And then we had a four star, but this one's really great. Um, Mm -hmm. It's titled Gem of Podcast Incoming. Gem of a Podcast Incoming. (laughs) And uh, this came from a guy named Corey. And he basically said he's been searching for a new podcast for my interest involving cryptids, paranormal, and legends for a while. And I believe I found it. Passionate hosts with interesting topics. This show feels like a diamond in the rough waiting to be polished to shine to its fullest. And then he goes on to give us a bunch of really awesome suggestions cool. um, on how to improve the show. So we're not, I'm not going to awesome. read them out because it's quite long, but um, thank you so much, Corey, for, for the, their really great suggestions. Super fair comments, for Authentic, sure. Authentic, genuine feedback. Definitely, kind of. and we really appreciate that. Mm-hmm. So um, he, he does make a comment about um, maybe going a little slower sometimes, and Amber and I have talked about that, actually, how we... Producing the show, not yeah. on a weekly format, more of like a bi... Or not, a bi-monthly format. Right, giving a little bit more time to dedicate to the research and make sure we're bringing you guys just the best possible exactly. best possible experience that you can get, right? Yeah, because we've seen some life changes in the last couple months and we we've definitely got a little bit busier and things are probably just going to get busier and busier because we've got a lot of big plans for oh, the show. Yes, we do. And yep. just in general. Really so. exciting stuff that we Lots have. Projects. This, definitely. So anyway, thank you guys so much for the reviews. And if you haven't um, had a time to do that, please drop us a, a five star and uh, yeah. and leave us a written review if you have time too. We really appreciate it. The iTunes says it helps. They apparently. really well. Apparently, those apparently. algorithms are crazy. But all I see on the new and noteworthy is like Oprah or like Conan. <laughs> He's got his new. I'm like, you guys don't need yeah, that. I know, right? <laughs> Come on. <laughs> but anyways. Anyway. Okay, well let's let's jump into it. Mm-hmm. Let's dive in, so to speak. But okay. <laughs> Before we get right into it, though, I wanted to, we just kind of backtrack and go through a little bit of part one. Um, So Mm -hmm. essentially, we ended off, I mean, we talked a little bit about the foundations of the Noah Ark story, right? And how essentially this is far, far older than what we're getting in the Old Testament, in the book of Genesis, in the Mm -hmm. Hebrew Bible. Um, He's the central hero figure, but this is the same central hero figure we get in multiple other stories. Who, sorry? Uh, like a, a Noah, sorry. <laughs> yeah, he's, a, he's like, what are we talking well, about? Well, I just said the Noah's on. That's one of the biggest parts about this is the fact that we're getting all these variations and versions, right? That kind of like almost like dogpile on top of one another and yep. just add more detail gets added in as you go along. But these different evolutions um, have different hero figure names, yes. right? And it's, it's so we get the first one, which is the Sumerian, which is Zeosudra. Zeosudra, sorry. Mm-hmm. And then... Later on, we get the Atrahasis, which is where we left off in part one. And this is the um, later sort of like Babylonian slash Akkadian. I was written in about the seven, written down, I should say, in about the 17th century BCE. Yeah. So the Sumerian one was probably around about at least five to 700 years before that, I believe. Okay. It's kind of like the rough guesstimations. Okay. But anyways, yeah. So we're, we're getting, now we're getting into Noah in this in this episode, in this part. That's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Not, but um, not before we finish up with uh, Atrahasis. Well, why don't we just jump right into that then? Mm-hmm. And the tale of Atrahasis and the great flood, the epic flood. Because we left you guys hanging. We did. It was so funny. Like when we wrapped up part one, I kind of realized, I was like, wait a second. We got through like the very earliest version, the Yasudra version of the Sumerian biblical, or not biblical, sorry, <laughs> epic flood story. Right. But we didn't actually get it to, like... The flood itself. Exactly. So, (laughs) Atrahasis, we saw... It was really cool, right? So, we had all these... 
hearkening back to like when we did our Gollum episode yes. and the clay, the mixing, the incantations, the reciting of all this stuff, and basically the building blocks of humanity comes from the earth, which Very is much, just yeah. freaking so cool. And it shows that the building blocks of the idea of alchemy is so ancient yeah you know what i mean like it's just so cool exactly and okay so then we left you guys off with um the goddess great mother goddess mammy um she was it was almost like she was she didn't have her hands tied behind her back but she was kind of being poked and prodded into doing this in the first place okay so this is where we left you guys so After the gods have decided on this goddess Mami creating these essentially what I'm going to call human slave workers. <laughs> That's sure, what they, sure. They're replacement people for the gods who were slaving away for, what did they say, like 3,600 years? They Something like that. And then we'll they eventually got fed up and they're like, screw this. We're, we're going to the council and we're going to, you know, we're going to appease the gods and we're going to get a solution. And this is their solution is to create the human race. And that, to me, is a very interesting um, sort of Genesis story in itself. (laughs) Definitely. It's not the Adam and Eve. It's not any of that. But again, right? Like, yeah, so very ancient. All right. So (laughs) after they create uh, the human race through this mixing of the clay and the blood of that god, that like slain god and everything, um, humankind kind of starts to take over is story and they begin to multiply and overrun the earth and they're causing all sorts of disruptions to the peacefulness of the god's realm right because of what is described (laughs) as this annoying noise it's just this incessant noise and uh, essentially the gods of to me what it kind of reminds me of is when you have a baby or (laughs) you're doing daycare or you're trying to get on with your life you're working at home and you have like a little one and they're just like constantly like like you know they might be doing something that's helpful maybe like unloading the dishwasher but they're still causing a racket (laughs) you know what you know what i picture there when i think of that like the the humans are causing too much noise and it's just driving them insane and i can picture the gods or the rendition of them covering their ears and all like you know Mm. i picture it like multiplying like like a like a disease and then and then like a high pitch vibration or like Ooh. a frequency from just the talking and the nattering of these way more people than there should up. be that's just this floating this, up to the godly right? realm it's just like that sound this just this oh incessant sound i just had a thought what if the monsters from a quiet place are the god they're the ananuka <laughs> the, the council <laughs> i totally said that wrong what's it called how do you pronounce ananaki? it ananaki all right sorry <laughs> that's how they pronounce it in ancient aliens anyway ananaki that's right anyway <laughs> so after um so we're at this point here where humans are annoying Clearly. i guess we're, we're pretty familiar with that human beings are friggin' annoying man like, i suppose so, just yeah. getting in the way causing all sorts of havoc but but they are serving a purpose, right? They're they're essentially doing the work, the labor that the gods would have to do. So it's like, how much can you possibly complain? Right. Anyways, so the gods, they take a vote, essentially. And you get this repetition. So there's several verses, and a lot of it is missing. It's very sparse and fragmentary. But what was left on these tablets was essentially... various circumstances, it it, it has a pattern of every 600 years, the gods attempt to alleviate their annoyance by sending down either like disease or famine or some sort of drought in order to wipe out the human race. Mm -hmm. And at every single 
attempt, they're thwarted in some way, shape, or form. And they don't actually ever get rid of the human race. They just decimate it to an extent that it's manageable. (laughs) And then 600 years go by, and by that time, the human race is exploded again, and they're super annoying, so they have to go back and do something else. You gotta do it again. Yeah, exactly, right? So you get references to, yeah, exactly that, like drought, so no rains, the idea of... um, uh, yeah, like just killing people off that way. That's kind of harsh, eh? These half bushel baskets referring to famine, all that. So we saw that in the first episode. Yes, we did. Mm-hmm. And so, okay, <laughs> the final solution is not a drought. It's the opposite. It's a flood. So the council decides they're going to wipe out the human race. They just want to start again. It's not about anything to do with uh, moral implication or obligation, whatever you want to say. It's just the fact that they're just tired of They're them, just fed up. Which is kind of hilarious. But anyways, <laughs> simple, right? And so Enki, the god of Earth realm, he also goes by the name Ea, which literally is just E-A is how you spell it. And that was his later version. I believe that was the Babylonian? I could have that wrong. though. sorry. Um, but essentially, this guy decides to go against the decision of the Ananuka Council. And he alerts the noble Atrahasis to the god's plan uh-huh. so that he may build this boat, save himself, his family, all the earthly creatures um, besides man, as well as all the gold and silver in the world. So that's kind of interesting. Mm. That gets thrown in. That has to be a pretty, pretty solid big boat to hold all of the earth's gold and silver like is that even yeah like this is um well i mean this <laughs> is in suspending the, ne- the laws of physics here <laughs> yeah well yeah neck of the woods of solomon times if you guys recall that episode and the amount of gold mm-hmm. we were dealing with there i mean if you've already got two a pair of each animal and then you're uh you're rocking that as well that's a definitely lot. gonna get a little bit heavy that's a big load. but does this sound familiar anyone Obviously, this is what we're talking about here, and it's just very, very, very exactly specific. It's very <laughs> right? specific. There's too many parallels to ignore. Mm. All right. So Atrahasis, again, right? He's the man. He's the noble man. He has his ear to God, so to speak. And he hears Enki's warnings, and he heeds them. And it's more like a, a vision slash a voice kind of thing is how it's described in this version. Okay. Um, but I'm just going to skip to the part where we're actually getting to the flood here. Cause a lot of this is very, like I was going through this myths of Mesopotamia, like the actual text of, yes. and translation. And it's so like partial and just like, it's like half sentences all over the place. It's not even worth reading out loud. Okay. <laughs> but anyways, let's get to the flood part here. Cause this is cool. All right. This is a quote from the text. Dr. Hossies. The flood roared like a bull, like a wild ass screaming in the winds. The darkness was total. There was no sun. For seven days and seven nights, the torrent, storm, and flood came on. And then this is... Okay, so now I'm skipping to after the flood. And this is the part where the gods are still unaware that Ea slash Enki has informed Atrahasis to build a boat in order to save humanity. The warrior Enlil... Or Elil, sorry. Spotted a boat... And was furious with the Ajiji. We, the great Anua, Ananua, all of us, agreed together on an oath. No life form should have escaped. How did man survive the catastrophe? 
<laughs> and nice. so then we get Enki admitting his guilt and his wish that life be preserved. And he turns to um, the mother goddess, Mami, for ways to control the human population in the future. Okay. And so this is him addressing Mami. You are the womb goddess who decrees destinies to the people. And then there's some lines missing. (laughs) Okay. And then it says, in addition, so this is like he's kind of dictating what he wants, but it says, in addition, let there be one third of the people among the people, the women who gives birth yet does not give birth successfully. So basically saying there's going to be stillbirth. Right. Let there be the, this is weird, Pasutu demon amongst the people to snatch the baby from the mother's lap. Establish Ukbaptu, Nutu, and Igitsitu women. They shall be taboo and thus control childbirth. And that's end quote. I'm like, okay, whoa, what Igubitsu women? I couldn't actually come up with anything that like kind of added to that but essentially what the the gist that i'm getting from this passage is the idea that enki is basically establishing what we know today as different forms of infertility yes yeah and that's their final solution and so that's why you get the end of like this sort of like every 600 years you need to go and wipe out the human race and whatever else and <clears throat> sorry excuse me <clears throat> got a, <laughs> frog, got a frog in my throat that's okay that's okay <clears throat> But yeah, so what do you think of this latest version here? I mean, it's definitely a hair tweaked different than what we, uh, the, the one that people are used to. Oh, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So the later versions you're talking the about. The later versions. Mm-hmm. Um, definitely adds a lot to the first version that we discussed in yes. part one that yeah. was very, very vague. And it sets the stage for this next version that's to come. And again, right. this is pre-biblical. This one comes during the Babylonian reign. Like, so again, oh, so this is kind of, oh, I forgot to mention this off the bat. Okay. Well, it's okay. Come back to it. Oh, just the idea that we're going to be talking about Gilgamesh. I think we right. prepped that. I think in part, part one, one we did. Mm-hmm. Yes, we did. Yeah, we did. <laughs> and I mean, we're not going into crazy detail with Gilgamesh here because we have a lot to get to. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, I think we've already made our point quite well <laughs> about exactly. the ancient origin of this act of the story right of building the ark mm-hmm. and whether or not it was an actual ark ark like people would see on the cover of a children's book or in sunday school or a circular vessel or something interesting like that like right we touched on that in part one too it's like these several variations right. and versions and everything exactly so after after Atrahasis comes this Babylonian epic of Gilgamesh. Mm-hmm. Most people have at least heard that name, right? Mm-hmm. So around 2400 to 1700 BC was when that was kind of was written. when this was mm-hmm. right the the story being perpetuated. That's interesting though because okay, wait. So we refer to that as the Babylonian epic of Gilgamesh. What this actually is is Akkadian. Yes. Mm-hmm. Right. And the Babylonians were because okay because we're there's linguistic separations and then we're not even really looking into necessarily a lot of like ethnic separations Mm. because it was more tribal at this Mm -hmm. point in time you know what i mean like yeah i think what that mostly refers to is like this was the akkadian empire right like um era kind of thing and so this story would have been passed along with various different languages and dialects throughout that empire including Mm. in babylon the longest of the stories that was found in, uh, I always struggle to pronounce this, but cuneiform, 
cuneiform, cuneiform, which is Mm. that kind of bird feet style um, crisscrossing language. The wedge form. The wedge form. Mm -hmm. um, That's really, really interesting. I actually would really love to learn how to do that. We could write like secret messages to each other and stuff like that. You know what I mean? (laughs) Or like write messages to our like, to, to fans and people that like, write to us or like for patreon and stuff we could like write in that that'd be so fun and like have a decoder included too (laughs) right (laughs) so anyway um this this longest version of this though the akkadian epic that Mm. was discovered written in this form it follows the exploits of this mythical king uruk um or gilgamesh so believed to have he's the king of uruk the king of uruk so this Mm -hmm. is a city Aruk is one of the earliest, yeah, most ancient cities. Right. Pretty cool. Believed to have lived somewhere between, like we kind of said before, 28 to 25, 24 to 7, you know what I mean? Like it's, that's 300 years though. So like we're dealing with still like the Diluvian era of like people can live for a very, very, very long time. You know mm. what I mean? Is so Gilgamesh like, actually, is he a part of that 10 generations? I don't know. Because that's the, I was looking into that more. It's very interesting, this whole idea that basically the... 10 generations that spawned from Adam up until the great flood are referred to the 10, um, oh, what's it called? Like the anti-diluvial anti-diluvian gen- patriarchs. Yes. Mm-hmm. Right. Moses is the last of those, isn't he? I'm, or actually, no, he's not. He's, he's the one that comes right after that. I believe it's Noah is like the last one. Yeah, the ninth or whatever, right? Yeah, or the the, the tenth. Yeah, Yeah. in that ninth generation moving in. And we'll touch on that in a second. Mm -hmm. But the cool thing about Gilgamesh, and that's interesting, is he pops up earlier on, right? So he's actually featured in a variety of Sumerian tales as well as later Akkadian, Babylonian stories of the Great Flood. So some where he's incorporated with the epic in the Sumerian versions and others where he's not. The Sumerian story of Atrahasis in the Flood is incorporated at the end of the epic, mm-hmm. but it's kind of twisted slightly from the previous versions. So yeah. the name changes from Atrahasis to Utnapashkin. Utnapashkin. Utnapishkin. Utnapishkin. Man, that's a tough one, isn't it? Okay. We'll have a little contest, maybe you guys can try to pronounce this. So, but the name was different. It was that instead of Atrahasis, and then the art comes to rest on a mountain top uh, of Mount Nimush, as opposed mm-hmm. to a flat area of dried land. I think something that I just want to reiterate before we really get into the specifics of Gilgamesh, like you already said it, right? Like, so yeah, this is a compilation of a bunch of pre-existing stories that the Akkadians, during their, like, height of the Akkadian Empire, they decided they were going to write it all down into this one epic. And so later on, like, historians and and archaeologists and everything are trying to piece together the actual origins for this, what is called the Epic of Gilgamesh. Yes. But, again, another sort of thing to confuse people even more is the idea that this Gilgamesh guy, just the figure alone, is featured in so many, like, a plethora of stories and yeah. not all these are actually in the epic of Gilgamesh. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. He's doing it's, some cameos and some other work. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, yeah. Which, yeah, it does kind of muddy it up a little. Mm-hmm. It, it, yeah, when you're trying to decipher origin because it... Uh, and there's so many extra details added in. Oh, and another interesting point is the idea that so many of these, because we're getting into so many different versions and so many different of these cuneiform tablets that have been uncovered. And another funny little point that I, I stumbled across when I was doing the research was the idea that some of these have so many different versions because they're actually written by people that were like students. So say like 
schoolboys. Right. And they're like, you know, like, can you imagine like you're doing your homework, you're a 12 year old boy and you're whatever, you're doing your cuneiform and you're just like, oh, I don't really care about the accuracies <laughs> of the story. I'm just writing down my own version. Sure. You're just making it up as you go Exactly. Along. And so that's why we get a lot of these inconsistencies and, and all sorts of other stuff, which I think is really cool. It's almost like we're reading ancient book reports from a past civilization. That's a funny way of putting it. A little bit, yeah. It's like the scholastic book fair in ancient Babylonia. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Go down there and pick up your cuneiform mysteries. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> Love it. Um, oh, and one- that does point again to the idea that this was a little bit more of a democratic um, yeah. form of communication, right? If Definitely. it's widespread, it's not just the elite. Exactly. Yeah. People were taught to, taught to use it and it was quite easy to learn mm-hmm. is the message. Is that, we mentioned that I think in part one, it, Yeah, exactly. Um, the, the guy from the British museum was teaching kids mm-hmm. uh, a class on how to do it and they're picking it up right away, yeah. which is so cool. I love that. So um, maybe we could do like a, on, we could do like a live video where we're like talking about it or something <laughs> in the future on live Twitter show or something like that. <laughs> But what's interesting, though, is like what we get in these alternate versions and stuff is obviously when we eventually are searching for the Ark itself, we have varying locations of things. Mm-hmm. So it's important to note that Stephanie Daly in this Myths of Mesopotamia book that we've been using as a primary resource here argues that this Nemush um, in the Gilgamesh version mm-hmm, and even... Mount Ararat that comes up in the Noah Genesis version are polar. They're not at the same place. Totally different. So just look at them up on a map. So it's like everything else, right? It's like, it's like the Ark, the Ark of the Covenant, the, all these items, these of great historical significance and religious ties, they always have many different like end locations, Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. Who knows where? Yeah. And even what your other point was, your previous point about how (laughs) in this epic of Gilgamesh, we get a different place. So we don't get just a name change. We get the Ark coming to rest on a mountaintop as opposed to just a generic piece of flat land that just comes as the water dries up, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah, so I feel like this, again, kind of leads into some of the subjectivity of, like, interpreting these stories. Mm -hmm. And then on the flip side... (laughs) I keep smacking my ring on the table. Sorry, guys. That's (laughs) okay. But and then on the flip side, you get, um, say, like, today, Armenians will tell you it is on the top of Mount, Mount Ararat. Ararat. Yeah. Right. And that it like, definitively yeah. is. So then yeah. you get that influence. Mm-hmm. And then you get creationists saying, anyways. We're- <laughs> well, well, we're going to get into that very quickly here. <laughs> yeah. um, because there's a lot to, to touch on on Mount Ararat. Yeah. Let's so, just say that. So much. But anyways, let's just get into the actual story. Let's just brush over this because, like we said, right, so we're getting more added into this epic flood story. Yes. And in the Mesopotamian epic of Gilgamesh, so Mesopotamian, (laughs) Akkadian, whatever, um, same diff, an elderly man by the name of Utnapishtim, so that's Utnapishtim, let's go with that pronunciation, Mm -hmm. Um, he is the Noah figure in this story. And his name actually translates to roughly he found life or he who saw life. Interesting. Which is interesting Because you're saving life, obviously, Mm. so. Exactly. He found life. Not he preserved life. Anyways. Yeah, but there could be some, 
translation mm-hmm. variance is there. So this is cool, though, because this is like him, this is like Noah telling the story to Gilgamesh. Noah or Utnapishtim, whatever you want to call the him. The Noah figure. The Noah the figure. The generic Noah figure. Mm, the hero figure. Right. Yes. And so he basically is kind of an elderly man at this point, and he relates this tale. And so he's actually described as a former king priest of Shuparak. So we got that reference in earlier versions, yes. too, the Sumerian versions. And this Utnapashtim tells him how he survived a great flood and he was afterwards granted immortality by the gods. So that's interesting. He's the last of mankind to be deified. And that can be a point of contention, too, with the Noah version that we'll get in Genesis, because obviously he didn't live forever. Exactly. (laughs) So, okay. Utnapishtim's account is cast in a polytheistic background, and it shares many details with the Noah Genesis version, including this warning from the god about this impending deluge, the building of the boat on which to save his family and animals, as well as the sending forth of the birds. There's the three birds. Yes, that's mm-hmm. right. So that's another a consistency. And then as well, the sacrifice to the gods after disembarking onto dry ground. So he kind of goes in in this epic, like which I'm not going to do a full reading of, but yeah, so he's essentially relating all of this to Gilgamesh. And Gilgamesh himself, like we kind of touched on, he's he's considered a semi-mythic, semi-historical figure. Yeah. Um, he's described as the king of Uruk, like yes. you said. And he himself is cited as having lived an unnatural kind of superhuman amount of time. Okay. I can't remember. I think it was at least 300 and something years old. But yeah. um, don't quote me on that because I don't have that right Well, in the generic thing, I, the dates I threw up above was like 300 years. I mean, okay. that was a few hundred years younger than Noah. Noah himself but... lived to be about... Um, five. S- no, no, he was 960. Okay. He actually, or was it 980? I think he lived 60 years longer than Adam, who was reported to live to be about 920 or 930. Or Interesting. Something, somewhere in there. It's yeah, funny, right? Because it's like at that point, we're, we're, we're really splitting hairs because does it really matter... 300, 600, 900 years old. These people are living hundreds inhuman. of years. It is the, That is the point here. The one reference that you had written down that I noted, because um, you had that 500-year reference, and that was actually at the age which Noah became a father. I see. Okay, that's <laughs> so what it was. So he was birthing okay. human beings at 500 years old. Anyways, I mean, he's making leeching you and look like a spring chicken. That's right. That much. That's right. <laughs> but anyways, yeah, going back to this guy. So superhuman amount of time. He's also described as being like part giant and he's one-third human, thus ultimately doomed to mortality. And that's a huge part of the Epic of Gilgamesh mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. him kind of appeasing the gods and trying to gain immortality. And it doesn't happen. It doesn't work out for him. Okay. But anyways, um, I love this version of the Utnapashtim story, or the Great Flood story as recounted by Gilgamesh in Utnapashtim, because this is the middle ground between these very early Sumerian and Akkadian versions and Babylonian, whatever, into this, what will be the fully crystallized Genesis version yeah, that that's right. everyone became so familiar with and thought it was the bee's knees. It was the the <laughs> it was the the foundational rock of whatever yep. everything. But then it's not. Nope. It's not. So okay, let's get into a little bit of what actually happens in the story. I've just some like you know bullet points here. Sounds good. Yeah. So again, right? Utnapashtim is. The, ear to the God. holy one he's got his ear to god he is 
in tune as opposed to everyone else in his society isn't. Um, and then he's warned by Ia slash Enki about this doom. And <laughs> the doom, doom of humanity. <laughs> hey, might, there might be some doom. You say it so lightly. <laughs> and then again, in the story, we get the flood and wind lasting six days and six nights. And it's described as flattening the land. Oh, crazy. <laughs> Which is weird because it actually ends up, <laughs> the boat ends up on the tip of Mount Nemush, <laughs> which is referenced. So everything and, but the mountain Nemush. Right, okay, so me, Nemush is the only exception. Alrighty. <laughs> and then I already said this as well, the consistency with the birds. And this was a quote, it says, on the seventh day he released a dove which flew away but came back to him. He released a swallow but it also came back to him. Then he released a raven, which was able to eat and scratch and did not circle back to the boat. So that was his kind of... So that's the three birds. You have a dove, a swallow, and a raven. Just comes up again. To Mm -hmm. find the land again. You know, I'm thinking here, like, flattening the land. That almost implies to me that this is happening... Because we're going to talk about the idea of localized flooding, global flooding. Like, could multiple localized floods have happened at the same time? Mm -hmm. That, to me, implies it's in an area where it's obviously sand. Like, right? That would Ooh. that would change a mountain of sand, a oh, hill, a mound. It would level things out and flatten things out, and the solid rock formations would stand oh. alone. You could even interpret that differently, too. It's almost like a metaphor for the flattening of the land because the surface of water is inherently flat. True. Unless you have a storm, obviously, then. <laughs> epic waves. Indeed, indeed. We like some of those um, paintings of the the flood, right, that we've uh, put up on social media and stuff, and they're all like, it ain't calm waters, like, the gods were definitely, you know, dipping down there and stirring things up and making sure it wasn't just a nice, sunny, calm, calm sailing days. <laughs> Although I suppose you wouldn't really be sailing. It was more just floating, trying to survive. Because mm-hmm. you had no destination. No destination. Nowhere right? to go. I mean, that's actually something. I mean, I, again, <laughs> I always say that, like, we'll get to it, we'll get to it. But I mean, these are all theories and elements for uh, at the end of the series because it's like mm-hmm. <sighs> lots to get into. Oh, yeah. well, let's touch on Noah because this is the crux of a lot of, of all of it really, because this is the story that most people are familiar with. It just happens to be based on ancient versions that we've been talking about this entire time, mm-hmm. which is really, really cool. <laughs> um, so yeah, like you said, the 10th and last of the antediluvian patriarchs. Right. Okay. I thought I knew that. So it basically <laughs> refers to the generations of rulers and leaders and the humans that were there before the deluge, right? Yes. Yeah. I actually had this little point here. The term patriarch is actually also used when making reference to the 20 male ancestors that live between Adam, so the first human being on earth, and then Abraham, which was the founding father of the covenant. Interesting. So that, again, is is interesting. So that's not anti-diluvian patriarchs. That's just patriarchs in general. But yeah. Interesting. Mm-hmm. More you know. It's almost, just even pre-diluvian stuff deserves its own episode in a, in a I sense. I really you want I mean? to like, get into that, yeah. There's yeah. a lot to it, but I feel like first on the list would probably be Ark of the Covenant. Oh, 100%. 100% trying <laughs> mm-hmm. to track that down. Okay, but in the Noah story, we're dealing with the book of Genesis, chapters 5 to 9, accounts of this great flood, right? Um, mm-hmm. He's described as the son of Lamesh, 10th generation after Adam, um, like we just mentioned, describes the patriarchs before the flood is living than more than half a millennium on average, like we've mentioned, right? So that's on average. So he was mm-hmm. 500 when he had his three sons, uh, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Didn't Shem sound familiar to you? Sea peoples? No, not the sea peoples. Um, that to me sparked again the golem, where it was like he put oh, the, the shem, shem in his mouth, and that's what kind of granted. It was spelled life. with an I, though. 
Shim? Shim. Oh, it was I a think, shim, not shim. Ah, shim, shim. Shim, shim. Shimmy shams. Flim, flam. I don't know why that made me think of uh, the office when he's at doing the lecture. It could be a who's watsy or a, a whatchamacallit. <laughs> he like smacks the guy on the head. Chocolate bar. Oh, yeah. And then you find yourself having a payday. Hey, <laughs> that's actually an appropriate reference because uh, Steve Carell was in... Uh, that movie oh. um, after after yes. the Jim Carrey one. Uh, exactly. Whoa. Evan Almighty. Evan. Right? Oh my goodness. <laughs> That's actually kind of funny. That's hilarious. All right. So, all right. So same kind of story though, right? God became saddened because of the wickedness of mankind. So this is a version not, not mad about the noise, mm-hmm. the wickedness. <clears throat> Sin was kind of a big deal So there's this Genesis. new moral implication. Right. It's, mm-hmm. uh, it's becoming less about the, less legendary, less mythological and more like, yeah, hard line moral messages for sure Mm -hmm. so he decides of course to send this great flood to destroy all living things like the previous stories noah was the only exception right because Mm -hmm. he was this righteous man blameless among the people of his time Mm -hmm. and because he walked with god same as having the ear to god like atrahasis that's so sweet they go for their daily constitutional (laughs) (laughs) hand in hand on the beach (laughs) (laughs) that's bad okay He warns Noah, right, of the impending flood, commands him to build this huge ark, so a boat with no sails, no oars, no rudder, in order to save his family and then two of each animal. Mm. I don't have the cubits. I got the feet. 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet high. That's interesting you bring up these points, though, because when you get this description of a boat with neither sails, no oars, no rudder, um, that to me speaks of a... (laughs) speaks of the Sumerian round boats and, and that the, you know, like again, like a lack of destination, yeah. a lack of just aimlessly floating around right. in the water. Geez. Like to me, okay, what if right, so you're in this ark, you've got no oars, you've got no rudders, you got nothing. And what if you see a chunk of land in the distance and you want to get to it? Yeah, that's You have to wait uh, for God to kind of make sure you get over there. Like, like you just have to wait and aimlessly float until you maybe reach it. I guess. I don't like that. All the I think an- <laughs> I think I would ignore that part of the warnings and I would take some oars. Just bring one oar at least. And I do have another, sorry, just to confirm, the cubits. I don't have a reference as far as the 450 long equals one cubits, but apparently this one source is saying that it was 300 cubits long was the command from Ooh, God to okay. Noah. Right. Yeah, so again, maybe that's... We'll check in on this math in a minute here. <laughs> math isn't my strong suit. <laughs> Okay. So this part, this is where it gets even crazier though, right? Because the legends say that it took Noah 120 years just to construct the ark itself. Whoa. So that's, I mean, nice bit of warning time about Mm -hmm. the incoming flood, right? 120 years. Hey guys, 120 years from now, there's going to be a flood. I suppose if you're living to be... But that. even then, if you're living to be seven, eight, nine hundred, it's like that's still a good chunk of your life, like to prep. Yeah, my question is because obviously he had help with this boat; he didn't build it by himself. Wow. Um, he had workers, right? Presumably. And you're leaving all these people behind. My question is: Okay, wait, is it just Noah that has an extraordinarily long lifespan? Is, does everyone have these extraordinarily long lifespans? They all do. Yeah. Okay, so they all do. Because my question is like: Okay, so what if he was the only one that? had this incredibly long life so he's just seeing cycles of generation of workers almost like an ant colony right <laughs> constructing this thing similar right. to like how the pyramids might have looked and like the grand scheme of things if you're Perhaps. coming up with that construction plan yeah <laughs> but yeah like so that's 
kind of messed up, right? You can't build this thing on your own. Even in the Bible, they reference the fact that there was a little boy that brought the bitumen to seal up the, the slats. And there was a whatever. There's like all these people contributing. Yeah. You leave all of these people behind. Yeah. Even though they're contributing to your survival. Yeah. You think that would be some sort of like, I don't know, redemption move. 120 years worth of redemption. It's a, yeah. Like God just like went on vacation after he was like, Hey, it's going to be a flood in 120 years. And I'm going to go to Costa Rica for the rest of this. And when I come back, it's just going to be a flood. No redemption. No, no second chances. I'm no, not listening nothing. to anything. Yeah, exactly. That's Very the old, old Testament. Testament, you know, hardcore. <laughs> okay. So 120 years. Um, yeah. seems like a long time. This all came to a head though, right? In roughly, <laughs> 2225 BC, so 2225. That's according to a like, Jewish history. That's according to a Jew, like um, Chabad.com, it's just a Jewish history mm-hmm. website looking into the Hebrew Bible. Mm-hmm. So we're working with, I mean, everyone knows roughly what we're working with mm-hmm. here, right? Give or take a few hundred years, let's say. Mm-hmm. So on the seventh day of the Hebrew month of Sheshvan, the rain began to fall. So in addition, there was actually, according to the legend, massive jets of streaming water that shot up from the depths of the earth. So like water from the table. (laughs) Um, And then this downpour continued for 40 days and 40 nights until the face of the earth was entirely submerged. So covering up the summits of the highest mountains, or most of them, at least, right? With water 15 cubits deep. The cubit generally take... Oh, I do have one here. Okay, the cubit. This is just from Wiki. Generally taken as equal to 18 inches. Mm. So. Length of the arm from the elbow to the tip of the middle finger. There you finger. go. There huh. you go. That's right. I feel like that's, that has a huge discrepancy because my mind versus yours Our is way very different. Very small. <laughs> Indeed. Anyway. Sure. Not that significant, really. But the tale continues on to say that, of course, the rain subsides eventually, right? But the waters continue to churn and rock. And this is like that artwork we were describing where it's like not a safe place to be, even mm-hmm. with this arc. And this happened for an additional 150 days before the water actually began to slowly recede, right? Mm -hmm. So eventually the water recedes. The ark is, of course, survived. Mm -hmm. Survived this 150 days plus the during the rains. And it is left to rest on the top of Mount Ararat, according (laughs) to legend. Um, which is, of course, in modern-day Turkey and Armenia today. The, The mountain is sort of split between the border. Yeah. Now, there's the reference actually says mountains, plural, of Ararat. Oh. Um, And this is a variation in different versions, which of course could imply directly Mount Ararat or the mountains in and around Mount Ararat. Okay. So, but we're working in the neck of the woods of uh, Armenia and Turkey. Mm -hmm. So, but again, same as the stories we were talking about before. At this point, Noah had to determine the extent of the water's retreat, right? Mm-hmm. So he sends out the raven first. Bird didn't fly very far, circles around, comes back to the ark. Attempts to send out a dove for a total of three missions. This is the Genesis version. Mm-hmm. The first time the dove leaves the ark and returns without any results. The second time, it returned with an olive leaf in its beak. So indicating that new growth had oh, actually started. There you go. And then the third and final time, it didn't return at all. So, clearly finding a place... <laughs> I'm just thinking, this thing drowned. <laughs> well, I mean, it returned the first two times, True. right? So, okay. the implication is that it found a place to chill. Yeah. And, of course, this indicates that there's land. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. On the the first day of the Hebrew month of Tishrei, I'm not pronouncing that correctly. Tishrei. So, 1657 tw- uh, of creation, 2104 BC, the water completely subsided. So this is where we're left of the Ark and its inhabitants beginning to emerge. Mm -hmm. So 
according to this legend, right? And this is again from Chabad.com. Mm-hmm. Um, 365 days, a full solar year. Ooh, in that's this a arc. big jump. So that's a huge discrepancy. Like they added a lot, a lot of. They time. made it sound more epic. Yes, they right. Did. They 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 definitely tacked on a little extra. And if you think about it, maybe that's a little more believable for being a, a flood of this proportion, right? Because you don't the very early versions you get you get all sorts of discrepancies and all sorts of timelines. Some are as little as seven days and seven nights, and then after that, it's quickly sub- subsided. After yes, other times you get twelve days, twelve nights. Other days you're getting these yeah the seven forty days. days. <laughs> Seven days. <laughs> oh, that's bad. We should... So there's a lot. Yeah, I feel like that is definitely one of those things where you can argue it's either more believable or more unbelievable. I'm going to... Well, I don't have a lot of flood experience, though. Like, we've had some localized <laughs> flooding, like, in the spring months around town and stuff. And, and honestly, like, that's not too extensive, but... It's coming from creeks. It's not coming from, like, say, like, what we're theorizing where this could possibly have been... This could have come from the Mediterranean and basically flooded the um, Black Sea slash like Persian Gulf. That's area a possibility. Is kind of what we're talking about. And then the legend persisted. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's a possibility. So again, right? Like I'm just thinking to myself, like how how long would those take to? Sub- I have no idea. Well, I mean, we need to get a flood expert on here. We can probably we find one. We should try and reach out to some people that yeah would. I'm sure we could find somebody and get them in for part three, possibly. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, there's one individual in particular that we're going to be talking about in part three, and he was the same individual, his name Ballard, he found the remains of the Titanic wreckage. Yes. And now he's on a mission to uncover evidence to support the idea of a great deluge in the Black Sea area. So we're going to get to that. So maybe I should reach out. I'm going to send him a couple emails off this week and see if we can... Let's keep this interview train rolling. Maybe we can get somebody, uh, get him on there too. Holy moly. Talking with Steve Elkins the other day was so incredible. Like, I... I'm still reeling from that one. That was a blast. We hope you guys enjoyed that. And we Mm -hmm. will definitely be having Steve back on again soon. So stay Mm -hmm. tuned for that. Yeah. We've been chatting with him about some cool stuff. So (sighs) Andrew's favorite topic. That's right. (laughs) But we do have a few different variations between the Christian. Well, I mean, there's similarities and differences with the Christian Mm -hmm. and then the actual, the Islamic version as well, because this is mentioned in the Quran or at least Noah is right. Oh, so what's the, what's the connection there between the Quran and say like the old Testament? Well, they, they're both. (laughs) <laughs> That's a good question, actually. I don't Is know. Is one derived from the other? I, I'm not familiar with that at all. Neither am I, really. Okay, totally well, that's the only way you look into. Yeah. That's interesting. I, I do know that they're both portraying God as monotheistic. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's different than some of the earlier versions, right? Okay. Um, again, yeah, so they, that's way different than the Sumerian gods, obviously. Yeah, because they're all polytheistic. Exactly. There's a lot. <laughs> the cantankerous right. Sumerian gods. Right. Like. And it's more about, again, like these moral things, so like restoring order, punishment and redemption, humanity having to like learn lessons and dealing with this great power of God, right? Like the, mm-hmm. the, un, yeah, the unwavering the power of God. The moral God. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And Genesis states this in one verse that the flood came down for 40 days and 40 nights, like we mentioned. And then in another says the flood lasted over 150 days, others 365. Mm-hmm. There's inconsistencies all over the place, right? Exactly. This is kind of interesting because there's other Jewish traditions that mention Noah in a different light, where he actually sinned in the story by becoming drunk with wine after leaving the ark. 
Um, what? And then his sons have to, like, cover him up because he's, like, passed out naked. And he doesn't want to be, ex- they don't want him to be exposed, like, to this God. This is, like, the TMZ version this of the This is the, the TMZ arc. version of the arc, 100%. <laughs> what was he, just, like, having a binge or he was with, having like, Lindsay celebra- Lohan or something? Well, because or the going? story is that right after the arc, he planted a vineyard. That was one of the first things. Oh. And, um, I guess, grew some grapes real fast, mashed them up, and got hammered, so. Interesting. Anyway, Fermented grapes. I suppose so. He is mentioned in the Quran, so references to Nuh, so this is Noah in Arabic, Mm -hmm. and they're scattered throughout the Quran. There's no single narrative, though, that accounts to the actual deluge given, so that's the big difference. But the character, if you you will, the person Mm -hmm. is referenced. So that's similar, in a sense, to Gilgamesh, where he's popping up in these various different ancient tales and stuff. It isn't always associated with floods, but does that lend more credence to the existence of him as a real person, because he's Mm. referenced not connected to the flood? Or is it maybe the same name and it's a totally different yeah, person? Yeah, does it prop up that? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like That's interesting. So, I mean... So, there's no narrative of a single huge deluge? Not a huge one, but a regional one. Oh, so, the okay. reference in the Quran is consistent with Genesis on a lot of points. There's two important exceptions, though. So, one, in the Islamic account, Noah does not become a vinter or get drunk in his wine. Mm. So, he doesn't fall asleep naked or anything like that. <laughs> Or it says here, curse his grandson, Canaan, to be a slave to his brothers. <gasps> Just like the Canaanites. Right. That's exactly what that's referring to. Yep. Oh my gosh. The ancient enemies of Israel, right? Yes. The other exception is that in the Quran, the flood is a regional event. So it's only affecting the, quote, people of Noah. So very regional. It's not necessarily global. Oh. The people of Noah were the people of wherever the heck he was from. In antediluvian times. His own tribe. Exactly. So that ties in with these references of like the flattened earth, sandy, where exactly is this? We're we're getting into places where we need to look at geological evidence. You know what that's bringing to mind too is from the earlier versions, the Akkadian Sumerian and how this man, like Atrahasis, he was the king of Shuparak. And it later on is Utnapashtim right. is the king of Shuparak. And so maybe what they mean is that Noah's people are the people of that city, of that. It could even be like, what if it was just like a valley that was situated a little bit further below sea level, so it would have been impacted even more. We're we're not getting into that in part two, but there's going to be some interesting developments on like the possible evidence of that per se. Definitely. But that's, yeah, okay. That's bringing I'm, up all sorts of things to me. I know. There's, it's all so juicy. You know what I mean? Because <laughs> we're, so it is. Because we're now in we're in Sunday school today and it's getting juicy. Well, okay. If I <laughs> would have actually been, <laughs> like, this is fascinating stuff. If this would have been pitched to me in a different way back, back when I actually was forced to go to Sunday school, like when I was super young, mm-hmm. then I would have been way more into it, obviously, yeah. right? They weren't, uh. They Some went into the legendary better. side. They were just reading from a I book. know. In all fairness, like, my mom, we went to, like, a Baptist church, and we went to Sunday school, and my mom actually at one point was one of the Sunday school teachers. No way. And I feel like you get, like, I don't want to say, like, pigeonholed or, like, shafted, but, like, it's kind of like a, a program kind of that you have to, like... Yeah, sure. They give you the... Exactly. Yeah. So no, she doesn't really have that. much freedom. But I, I totally hear you, though. Like, if this had been sold in a different packaging or slightly different, then... Right. Like, like... Make it like Harry Potter or something for kids, where it's like, this is magic. Like, this is literally magic. Like, we're talking about angels and crazy flowers. Well, and, and just like, this, all this ancient history stuff, I mean, I guess some people don't find it interesting. Obviously, we do. We're losing the people that only love the crypto episodes, but sorry. I don't care, because this stuff we love. <laughs> sorry, not sorry. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> because we're migrating into an area right now where we're basically trying to figure out where could this great mm-hmm. deluge, the epic flood, have actually taken place? Yeah. Was it global? And 
most importantly for this part too, could the actual Ark still be found? Does it exist and can we find it? But before we get into all of that, we are going to take a quick coffee break for Coffee Gator. Are you a coffee fiend like us? Then Coffee Gator is about to become your new best friend. Coffee Gator is creating products that are simple to use, made of quality materials, and have a beautiful aesthetic. Oh my god, that pink series is amazing! <laughs> it really is, but of course there is something for everyone. Coffee Gator will up your coffee game whether you are an instant coffee fan or an espresso addict. Seriously, they've got every accessory under the sun, from stainless steel canisters, pour-over systems, cold brew coffee making kits, and insulated glass mugs. They have the tools you need to make your best cup yet, including helpful tips and tricks on their website. So simply use promo code QUARK, spelled Q-U-A-R-K, to get 15% off your purchase at coffeegator.com. That's 15% off your purchase using promo code QUARK, spelled Q-U-A-R-K, at checkout. So visit coffeegator.com today. Start drinking better coffee with Coffee Gator. And we're back. Alrighty, let's get into the search. And could we be potentially talking about an actual physical arc that can be found? Or slash, some people think they've found it. (laughs) Which to me is kind of um, an interesting claim. And we're going to get into a little bit of that. But I think what was interesting, we were watching a lot of documentaries about where an epic deluge or even a regional one, right, could have taken place. And one documentary mentioned the fact that this idea that the Mediterranean Sea could have potentially burst through this small aperture um, or canal, I guess you could call it, uh, in the northern Mediterranean. So... This is in the Aegean Sea realm, uh, and we had referenced that again in the Sea Peoples, right? Yeah, we did. And also with the um, the Minoan episode we did about the the, the, the Cretan bull. Yes. And the the little side story about King Aegeus, right? And right. how when his son went to slay the bull, he had the wrong sail color. He did the black sails accidentally because he was all distracted. Right. And then King Aegeus threw himself into the sea, and it's since then been called the Aegean Sea. So that's kind of the area we're talking about here. So some people think that there could have been almost like a ridge um, similar to like a a dike or like, you know what I mean? Like some sort of blockage that was just like blown out by um, rising sea levels. Yes. Some people think that this could have been a result from the last ice age that was about like 12,000 years ago and how like the accumulation of sea waters and the levels going up and up and up and up over time could have could have resulted in this. Okay. Yeah, rising sea level is definitely a big part of the entire idea of a Great Flood, Mm -hmm, for sure. mm -hmm, Exactly, because that would make a lot of sense, right? Anyways, so let's kind of get into that region specifically. So, okay, so just for mental maps here, we are in the Mediterranean on the eastern side, and there's this small, like, landmass that goes between the Mediterranean and the Black Sea. And from there... Like, it's the whole region is so interconnected, obviously, but from there, you get this whole Black Sea area, and then there's the, what's it called? The Armenian-Turkish border that has Mount Ararat in it. Yes. So all this is kind of related. So if you had the flooding coming from that one aperture that I mentioned, it could have just gone 
into this whole, I'm sorry, I'm looking at Google Maps right now. So like my visual, like I'm like dragging my fingers across, like this whole area that all of you can see right now at home listening. <laughs> so effective. <laughs> it's so effective. For an audio show. But you can see if you go on Google Maps and literally just type in Turkey and it'll bring you right to that area. And you can see how you can, it's just, there's so many tiny little lakes at the ground itself. The, um, what's it called? Like the elevation is lower. Yes. So it would have extended into this whole area and possibly even all the way into the Persian Gulf. Like you could have had a, a massive regional flooding event. Right. And if it was, and if it was that significant, those stories are going to spread. And so this is where it gets interesting and a little bit juicy because what we're going to get into now is the potential areas that an ark could have come to rest. And so, okay, if we're getting this regional flooding event, flooding the Black Sea all the way in across Turkey, across what we know as Iraq today, into the Persian Gulf, essentially. Yes. There's several different spots that people argue the ark a did come to rest or b can still be found to this day kind of thing like well i guess those are one the same kind of thing but (laughs) well different locations varying locations Mm -hmm. but yeah i think what's really important to reference here is the very early versions though again right so going back to the sumerian um ziasudra story and then later on the akkadian gilgamesh and when when i was reading through the myths of mesopotamia book by stephanie dolly she made the point of saying this is a quote the Sumerian version says that Ziasudra ended up on the island of Dilmun, which is actually Bahrain or Bahrain, whatever you want to say, in the Gulf, so the Persian Gulf. Bahrain. Bahrain, sorry, yeah. Bahrain. <laughs> but the Akkadian story says that Utnapashtim ended up at the mouth of the rivers, quote unquote. Okay, so these are two different places. The yeah. mouth of the rivers would be the the delta area where the Tigris and the Euphrates flow into the Persian Gulf. But Bahrain, or sorry, oh my God, I keep saying it wrong. <laughs> Bahrain. Bahrain is a lot further south, and it's about 300 miles from the delta where these two rivers flow into the sea. Okay. She says here, though, this is a quote, we can reconcile the accounts by using a belief known from the Arab tradition that the Tigris and Euphrates flow beneath the sea and then surface in Bahrain. Bahrain. <laughs> Bahrain. You're combining Beirut and Tehran. I know. I know. I'm sorry. This is classic. This is like my mom. This yes, is my mom. it is. Like, ah, yes, it is. I'm the next generation. Oh, Anyways. man. Lots but to look forward to for me. This is interesting. Okay. Let's not lose this point because this is key to me. Yeah. All right, so there's this Arab belief, sorry, the Arab tradition, which states that the Tigris and Euphrates flow beneath the sea and then surface at this island known, the yeah, the island of Dilmun, which is also... Bahrain. Bahrain. <laughs> and um, and, and the, the, the belief is supported by the notion that these waters around these islands are famed for their miraculous supply of sweet sweet water and which they do attribute to these rivers the tigris and the euphrates and she does kind of go into more detail with this too so stephanie dolly her interpretations i think are quite important and significant definitely she says here that another problem in this story concerns the location of the mountain on which this art came to rest so in the sumerian version like we've already said um in spite of the gaps in the text that are you know lost all time 
it looks as if the sun comes out and dries up the water and the ark doesn't come to rest on anything but the emerging flat land, like we said, right? Yeah, and yeah. But then the Sakadian version, you get Mount Nemush. <laughs> <laughs> right. And then Genesis names Mount Ararat. Exactly. So Mount Nemush is actually in Armenia and Ararat. Is bordering Armenia and it, Turkey. Exactly. But she makes a dis- distinction between saying that these are definitely different places. Yeah. And she was very clear on that. She was like, not arguing for that at all. Yeah. I mean, and it, it just goes to show, right, the the significance of the Genesis version of the story, because obviously Ararat ended, ended up being the f- primary focus of these expeditions to try to prove that that's where Noah's Ark rested, right? Mm-hmm. People weren't, weren't searching in other areas. They weren't going back to the Gilgamesh and the Akkadian er- stories. They were focused on the very limited details that are provided in the book of Genesis, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so are we getting ready to get into that now? The search on uh, Mount Ararat? I think, yeah, that's okay. where we're going. <laughs> so like we've said a million times, uh, border of Turkey and Armenia, this has been an area of like really, really like hardcore political tension for a long time. Mm-hmm. I mean, <clears throat> anybody who knows anything about the history of the Armenians in Armenia, um, not only do like the Turks, well, I mean, Turkey's had a rough go too in their tumultuous history, but the Armenians have really had a rough and, uh, <laughs> definitely let's just say, I, I can't remember the exact, um, oh, there was like a, a colloquial name for the mountain, but it's along the lines of like what we said for the Portel del Infierno, like gates mm-hmm. of hell, something along those lines, mountain of death or something like that, because there's just been so many It's not Siberian battles. mountain. Yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> okay. So I'm going to say, okay, first, first and foremost, there's allegedly references to Marco Polo seeing the Ark in the 13th century. And Marco Polo seems to pop up for everything. It's I'm like, rolling my Marco eyes Polo saw the Orang Pendek. Marco Polo saw the Ark. Marco Polo played Polo with uh, the first ever Polo player and whatever. <laughs> okay. Anyway, I, I don't know how much stock I can put into that. And we're going to mm-hmm. jump ahead to <laughs> Sir Walter Raleigh. Oh. Anyone remember Good old Sir Walter Raleigh. Mm-hmm. So from obviously our Lost Colony episodes, this was the yeah. guy responsible for those expeditions, right? And he actually wrote a book. Um, this was 1616. And he makes the argument, uh, taking up several whole chapters in his uh, History of the World. Um, and the, the actual title of this section was The Mountains of Ararat. So he claimed that they originally encompassed all the adjoining taller ranges of Asia, mm-hmm. mountain regions of Asia. So... That gives what? us a lot more to work with, right? Of course, this is Walter Raleigh in 1616. He never went to this area. You know what I mean? He's just, he's like many where, other... Where is he getting his info? He's a man of influence that decided to write a book about the world. Right? <laughs> it's like Herodotus. It's like Herodotus in a lot of ways. Yeah. So he believed that the Noah's Ark could have only landed in the Orient, especially since Armenia is not technically uh, east of the plain of Shinar or Mesopotamia, but more northwest Really? That was his argument. Okay. That's his argument. Hmm. But anyway, I just wanted to throw that in there because that's an interesting, obviously, throwback to our Lost so Colony weird. episode. Can we a second? So he's referencing east of the plain of Shinar. So that's like his criteria for where you're going to find Mount Ararat. Or sorry, <laughs> I mean, not find. To yeah, find the Ark. To find the Ark. Okay. And that Ararat is almost more of a, like, because he, he references it here, mountains with an right, S plural, plural of Ararat. Mm-hmm. So this is a wider mountain range. Obviously, that's almost like, <laughs> that's like an easy answer, you know what I mean? Yeah. To be like, oh, it's actually could be in this way more vast area. It's not like trying not to really actually helping. narrow it down. No, it's not helping at all. 
But people did definitely focus on Ararat. Mm-hmm. And these expeditions started even earlier than the 1800s, but we're going to start with 1829 and a guy by the name of Friedrich Peratt. Mm-hmm. So he was a German professor. He goes to Turkey, and some of the stories he was shown parts of the Ark that the Turks claimed to have found, pieces of wood. Okay. So the Turks, okay. So that's interesting because then on the flip side, you get the Armenians claiming other things. Here. Exactly. Oh, okay. So mm-hmm. this was the story where... Um, monks who had been living in a temple in the mountains of Ararat claimed to have found ho- the pieces of the hull and other artifacts, and they showed it to Perot on, when he traveled to Turkey in 1829. How could you just find a piece of wood, even if it was from a boat? It definitely like, wasn't. This was the ark. It definitely like, wasn't, obviously, right? <laughs> this is ridiculous. Like, we can all conservatively say that yeah. obviously that was not the case. Mm-hmm. Some of the reasons why he was there were a little fuzzy, like that he was there to climb Mount Ararat. Others say that he was there more on an acad- for an academic purpose. But he did stop by uh, this missionary at Eich um, Meidzen with his uh, with his team mm-hmm. when they were climbing the mountain, mm-hmm. and they were met by a deacon from this monastery. And this was at the foot of the of the base camp that they were working with, and. They made three total attempts to climb to the top of the mountain, finally reached the summit on the third ascent, and this was September 27th of 1829. Mm -hmm. So he scaled the mountain. He definitely was familiar with the area, and he believed that the wood that he was being shown could have been from the Ark. Okay. But he never actually claimed that he saw any traces of the Ark on the mountain. Mm -hmm. So that what he was being shown was just pieces of wood. Hmm. No context, right? It's like being given a... It's like we have this arrowhead collection at my grandparents' house and it was collected in, you know, way back in the 1920s mm-hmm. from the family on Saskatchewan. It's essentially from an anthropological perspective completely useless, right? Yeah. There's no context left. It's mm-hmm. all gone. It's just That's, And that brings to mind again like Chris Fisher, that lead archaeologist in the Lost City of the Monkey God 2015 expedition and how he when they found that cache of a bunch of different like the wear jaguar metates and everything and it was that big like there's 500 objects and he said if you remove these if you touch them if they're not in situ they have lost all value yeah exactly yeah so that again speaks to that yeah. context is everything people so a few years later 1876 british guy by the name of james bryce he's the next man on the scene for mm. the expedition so he was a law professor from oxford a historian and very interested in the search for the Ark. He summited Ararat in 1876 and become, over the course of the years in his research, like, thoroughly convinced in the historical accuracy of the Bible. Like, he was going 100% by the book of Genesis, believed that the Ark might still have survived and be sitting on Mount Ararat. But reading the work from 1929 from Perot, Perot basically said that like, although people are firmly persuaded that the Ark remains to this day on the top of Mount Ararat, in order to actually get there, you can't, you you essentially cannot because to ensure its preservation, no human being is allowed to approach it. This was back in the 1830s. Hmm. So not a ton to go on. You know what I mean? Um, but where am I at here? Sorry, you said 1829. Oh, sorry, I, I meant mm-hmm. to say 1829, right? Mm-hmm. So Bryce was the first person in modern times who claimed to actually find the wood on the mountain. So it, not like the first guy where it was given to him, shown to him by monks. Okay, this guy claimed to actually find it around the 13,900 foot mark mm-hmm. elevation. So okay. that kind of, that's pretty close. Huh. To, 
to the kind of like references in the, in the legends, right? Of where the Ark might have landed at the top. I see. Okay. He so he it? didn't actually make it to the summit, though. though. Not the actual summit. Okay. The summit of the mountain, but unlike close. this previous guy, Paro. Exactly. Okay. And he obviously missed it. If you're believing what uh, Bryce has to say, the first guy missed it. Right? Walked mm-hmm. right past it. This is what Bryce had to say, though. Mounting steadily along the same ridge, I saw at a height of around 13,000 feet, lying on loose rocks, a piece of wood about four feet long and five inches thick, evidently cut by some tool, Hmm. and so far above the limit of the trees that I could, by no possibility, sorry, sorry, um, sorry, and so far above the limit of the trees that it could, could by no possibility be a natural fragment of one. I am, however, bound to admit that no other explanation of the presence of this piece of timber did occur to me. No, no, you read that wrong. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. He said, I am, however, bound to admit that another explanation ah. of the presence of this piece Sorry. of timber did, did occur, occur to, to me. me. But as no man is bound to discredit his own relic, I will not disturb my readers' minds or yield to the rationalizing tendencies of the age by suggesting it. Well, that doesn't let a lot of so, to you. So, I mean... It's 1876. He's just got um, the classic, like, humanist adventurer outlook, right? Where he's just like... He wants to believe. Yeah. He's a Fox Mulder, right? Yeah, He's definitely. got the I want to believe poster on his wall. I'm still just having a hard time, like, grappling with the idea that even if you do find a piece of wood, even if it is a piece of wood that is definitely manufactured and manipulated by man, how how can you just subscribe that? Well, I mean, at least in this time, we have no concept of carbon dating. Oh, yes. They, they, and they have no way of dating thing. anything. They're basically like, that looks old. Yeah, exactly. Could be. Could, could be, be it. Could be not. I don't know. Who knows? You know, they wouldn't have even really had ways of even determining what wood it was. There would have been very limited people that would be like, okay, mm-hmm. I must, you know, researchers that know this is from such and such an area of the world or whatever. Oh, that's right? a good point too. And we don't actually get, as far as I'm aware, which maybe there is out there, reference to the exact type of wood that would have been used or could have been used. Um, and how that would play into, again, like these people, these later on. Totally. Like imagine if you could find a piece of wood and match it to the alleged era of 2250 BC or whatever, when the boat was being built and that same, like if there was like fossilized evidence of the same types of trees in a grove or something and like the same growth patterning could like Mm -hmm. match, Mm -hmm. that would be cool. That would would be be really interesting. (laughs) Wood is the key word in that sentence. Right. But anyways, yeah, so that was pretty early on, right? So we're 1876 is where we're at. We're jumping ahead of it And now. But now we're going to these aerial photographs that were uncovered in 1949. And this was just photos taken from a plane. It was a U.S. reconnaissance plane. And it was of the top of Mount Ararat. Yep. And supposedly these were just inadvertently captured. And yep. they revealed this anomaly on the side of the mountain. And this is a different, this is even higher up. So this is about... 15,500 feet. There was a lot of hype surrounding these photos, and I think they were archived in, like, some U.S. Department of something or other. But you can access them still, right? Because people were obviously going back and there were many people that <laughs> made trips to turkey just on the basis of these photographs definitely mm-hmm. one of the more significant ones being a guy by the name of james Irwin, who was actually one of the early um nasa astronauts to actually visit the moon yeah. um which is pretty interesting he was not only that but he was a christian so it's interesting right it's kind of a, that's really weird to be an astronaut to go through all that to be to to press for the limits of that frontier that's just a whole not, other 
whole nother level of religion there, I it's think, maybe. Or spirituality, you Definitely. can even say. Mm-hmm. He became obsessed with the story of Ar- the Ark being left on Mount Ararat, right? Mm-hmm. And after he was finished with NASA, he, he well, he actually claimed to have these experiences on the moon, right? Like, yeah. he claimed to have, see some weird things and, like, the Genesis rock story. And, like, that's an episode in and Oof. of itself. Yes. But he was an interesting bird, let's just say that. Mm-hmm. He basically, I mean, he, he passed away quite young, but he had several expeditions looking for the Ark. Um, he actually had one where he slipped and fell, I believe it was. Well, it was his second expedition is when he fell and he later succumbed to his injuries. So kind of a <laughs> unfortunate ending for James Irwin. He never did prove, obviously, that the no, Ark was on Mount he didn't. Ararat. There was another team that went in the 1990s, though, that Porcher L. Taylor III, which we saw in that documentary, too. I thought that was actually quite interesting because just mostly because of their ambiguity Oh, I don't want to say ambiguity, but they're kind of a little bit more level-headed, I would say. Yes. They're not like the creationists. They're not like, you know, like... No, just... they were definitely more level-headed. Mm-hmm. Like these, some of these other expeditions... Especially were... this guy, um, Farouk Elbaz. Yeah. yeah. And he was yeah. from the Boston University. He's a geologist and remote sensing expert. Yeah. And he... I loved what he said about how there's no consistency in the photos. Mm-hmm. It was basically shit evidence is kind of what he said. More how it's like... You don't even get a time of day associated with when these 1949 photos were taken. So yeah. the shadowing could be all over the map. And yeah. if you're going to go do subsequent aerial photographs, you need that. And they did that, right? Like they mm-hmm. did, they had satellite uh, photographs done. And then I think additional aerial photographs, but it was just kind of the same thing. It was like, yeah, shadowing is playing a big part in the perception of this anomaly. Mm-hmm. And that there's definitely, there definitely could be natural explanations for it but it is still an anomaly and when you do look at the shape of it it is quite bizarre um mm-hmm. so september 2000 um satellite imagery captured these same this same anomaly on ararat they basically dr farouk and the other people he was working with they concluded that they don't believe it to be that of the ark right that they don't think it is indeed beneath the surface a massive um, man-made structure. Mm -hmm. Then there's others that are using remote sensing technology and things like that. Um, essentially LIDAR-esque technology Mm -hmm. that we've referenced very recently. And they claim to see the outlines of a keel, bulkheads, um, exactly the outline of how an ancient ship would be built. It was like the chemical signature of the bulkheads and, and like the, so you had, it's almost like, it looks like a spinal column, right? Yes. You know how a ship, like, you know, all you guys at home, you know what a ship looks like. You, you know, you got the cross beams and then you got all of the, the straight. Think so of like, like a the... spine and the ribs, rib cage. Exactly. It's exactly like mm-hmm. that, right? And what's interesting about there, that one particular, I don't even remember what year that particular expedition was taking place, but they had that one year where an earthquake came and disrupted the site. Yes, it and did. And it actually resulted in quite a few interesting features kind of emerging even more. It's almost like, you know, when you get that shake, a shaker table, right? For sorting things, whether you're working at a geologic site or or working in a winery, (laughs) as we experienced. (laughs) But a shaker table table where you're shaking stuff and then, yeah, it's almost like the sifting, it grows up out of the earth and it does look to be some type of an outline, which is kind of interesting. definitely does. Mm -hmm. And, of course, in 2007, 2008, people are continuing on with this, right? Mm -hmm. They they can... People claimed... Again, this is a Christian expedition. They claimed to have found components of this ship found at a higher altitude, higher elevation, 
to be buried at 13,000 feet. So, like, again, pieces, remnants, pieces of evidence. Um, again, at the 13,000 feet. Okay. Exactly. Um, so I guess that would, mm. along their line of the story, that could make sense. Waters are rising. Perhaps the, the ark is hitting the side of the mountain or something. While this water is rising, you're losing pieces of it. There'd be evidence further down the mountain, potentially. That makes sense, I, I, I guess. I guess I can get that, right? Gravity's a thing. Here's the problem, though. The wood that they found, very much like we've been referencing over and over and over again here, it's not old enough. Mm-hmm. It is not old enough. To match with these, the Sumerians. These people, uh, not all of them, I'm going to say these people, <laughs> bad way of phrasing, <laughs> but these people in this expedition yeah. were working under the idea that they're young earth creationists, right? The earth is only 6,000 years old. Sucks for you, ancient Berbers. You were 2,000 mm. years uh, too early, so you're just floating in the abyss. Yeah. Um, so, of course, the geological the geological evidence, all the other, like, scientific references to go along with what they're saying, they're, it's over the head. It's well, not even, old, like, that's huge, and that's a big oversight, but again, the mythology goes back way further. Yes, they don't look at that. No. Nobody's looking at that. That's why yeah. we wanted to do this. That's annoying. Like, wasn't that one piece of wood, it was dated to be, like, the third century? Yeah, it was, like, AD. It was, like, third century AD. Yeah, and you're like, no, It's like, okay, match. yeah, unless Noah's actually, like... Not five, not 900 years old. He's like, f- whatever, 4,000 mm. years old. Maybe he just built the pyramids too while he was bored. Exactly. And so that again adds to all of this sort of convolution of this topic, right? Because you, you've got so many people interested in this story, but they're all taking their own angles. They're all taking their own premises, right? For what is fact. And whether or not you're going from the Genesis version, where you're going from the Quran version, you're going from the Zia Sudra version, from the earliest, earliest Sumerian stories, yeah. you're going to have, like, it's just all over the map. Exactly. And it's really annoying. And like when we're watching some of these documentaries, you have people referencing exactly that, like what we would, what we would say is probably the most accurate, which be what we're kind of, the narrative that we're sort of going along with, which exactly. is that a most ancient Sumerian and right. all these preceding generations of the story. But not everyone's working from those premises. So when you say you get an expert, quote unquote, they could be an expert in something. They could be an expert in exactly that, like creationism or whatever. Yeah. And they are totally on a friggin' another level, man. It's so about it's... to get even more convoluted in part three because we're going around the world. And actually, we will end up giving much more detail to some of this Turkey and Ararat stuff because it's a good crux of it all. Mm-hmm. Because... There's much more detail there's to kind much of expound more. on. There's and... much more detail. And now there's, <laughs> we've gone back a really long way to ancient Sumeria, mm-hmm. but now we're migrating into areas of this story not only pops up in ancient times before the Genesis story, but it pops up in ancient China, ancient India, the indigenous inhabitants of, of Australia. North America. The, exactly. The mm-hmm. the peoples of North America. I believe it's even Ojibwe. I'll have to double check. But I mean, we've got many different peoples referencing these, gl- by all accounts, a global flood. So that's where we're going to kind of get into. Is this regional? Is this global? Was this one flood story? Is this many different narratives and mythologies sprung up around just the central aspect of water and how that can affect a human exactly. society? You know what I mean? Like, right. Mm-hmm. You know, another thing too, I don't think we mentioned it, but along the lines of like the young earth creationists and things being not old enough was in one of the documentaries, they brought up this idea of anchor stones. Here's mm-hmm. this little breadcrumb trail, like literally like little red riding hood breadcrumb trail of anchor stones that they claimed were from the ark mm-hmm. that had these big 
crosses on them mm-hmm. that they were like these are Byzantinian crosses. Byzant- that, yeah, and they had they referenced the eight, right? Yeah. There's eight survivors of the flood and eight crosses on these. And stones. I'm like, hey guys, that's not old enough. I'm sorry. Not old <laughs> it's enough not for Andrew. Old enough. Not only is the actual iconography not old enough, mm-hmm. but the actual rock itself. I'm sure if you had some geological analysis of the rock itself, it not may not be right. It, like you would know where it came from in the table. It's this old. If it was quarried and used, you'd be able to tell how weathered it was and but how old it was. That's a very good point. And then again, another sort of weird thing is like, okay, they had this idea that these anchor stones would have been attached to the ark. And they would have been, like, dropped off along the way. And so they had this map of, like, of almost exactly that, like, a breadcrumb trail of where the Ark would have ended up because of these anchor stones and where they've been found. That's not adding up to me, though, really, if you think about it. Because, okay, wait a second. So you have anchor stones. Why are you dropping them along the way? you're not going to have any anchors by the end of your trip. Isn't that what they're for? And maybe I'm totally misinterpreting that. That is totally a possibility for sure. But again, right? Like if you're, if you're dropping these stones, like they kind of made this assumption of the line itself, like the, the linear trajectory mm-hmm. of where these stones were. So that doesn't really make sense to me. I'd no. have to look into that a little bit more as to how they came up with those yeah, conclusions. Yeah, it's, it's piecemealing their story to fit, mm-hmm. like what they wanted, what the message they want to convey, yeah. right? I want to go back and rewatch that documentary again. We can pick apart some more details for that and kind of, yeah, finish that thought Yeah. Um, before we move into the whole, like, all these narratives from around the world. Um, yeah. Definitely. So, yeah, I mean, we're definitely com- we're coming down to the end here, part mm-hmm. two. What are your closing thoughts and remarks? Oh, I, I, I think that I basically summed it up for myself already. Sure. This idea that where there's a lot of convolution, there's a lot of different people coming from different premises and different narratives, and, and we're going to get a lot of conflictions in these theories. Do you feel that we're getting closer to the idea of a very real great flood from what we've referenced today? I think so, yeah. And I really do want to touch on more of that and of the possibility of this great epic flood event tying into perhaps an actual geologic time frame having to do with exactly that. Like, first of all, like a ice age and then the melt and what could possibly come out of that. Can't wait. What about you? Where where are you at? I'm right along the lines with you. Mm -hmm. I'm, I mean, I feel like this, I, it's just so cool to see the transitions of the stories Mm -hmm. from the, from the Sumerian into Gilgamesh into Noah and the idea that this could all be the same person, Mm -hmm. that this is just, that this story could have happened Mm -hmm. and that it has been recycled and changed and tweaked through the through thousands of years by human imagination and creativity but that it's still just this juicy nugget of something very real that happened and the references of noah in the quran and the references of gilgamesh and all these other things not associated to a flood i think adds to the legitimacy of the account of something very very real Mm -hmm. which i'm excited to try to prove in part three i am excited to hear that too i i just one final thought too the idea that uh well yeah the idea that this was never lost right Right. there's all these fragmentary versions and different whatever Mm spinoffs and and all this like just the fact that it circulated and was just part of this collective cultural unconscious kind of thing you know what i mean like that's cool to me 
Definitely. Mm-hmm. The other thing I will finish off with is I am excited to talk about boats, people. Yeah. I'm just excited to talk about boats. We didn't boats. get into the round boats. We're talking, the we're gonna be, we're round, gonna be talking boats. round boats. We're going to be talking straight boats. We're going to be talking all <laughs> kinds of boats in part three. And I'm really excited about it. Sweet. Weed boats. Anyway, I'm going to stop there. <laughs> but thank you guys so much for listening. And as always, thank you so much to our producer, Charlene Ramler, and all of our Patreon supporters. We could not do this without you guys. Mm-mm. So thank you so, so much. And if you want to contribute to the show and help support the research, hit us up at patreon.com forward slash into the portal. We mm-hmm. just released a couple new episodes on there and they're super fun. Yeah. Um, and then as always, again, like hit us up with your ideas. Um, Corey there at the beginning with those great suggestions in mm-hmm. the review, leave us a review of that as well. But you can always hit us up. Uh, into the portal mailbox at gmail.com at into the portal podcast on Instagram and Facebook. And we love chatting with you guys. So come visit with us on there. Yeah. Yeah. And until, well, until we're back again. Mm-hmm. All right. All right.